This morning, I want to open a text with you that I've just been thinking about, I've been meditating on, that's kind of been sticking with me and sticking in my mind for a little while now. It's from Luke chapter 12, and it's a text in which Jesus tells us about his second coming. And as I've been thinking about this, I've read some books on it, and what I realize is that the return of Christ, it's one of the central teachings of the New Testament, that there are over 300 references to Christ's second coming in the New Testament. That's one out of every, t- every 18 verses. Now, for a lot of us, we don't, we don't think a whole lot about it. Like the second coming of Christ is something that we tend to avoid But what I hope to show you today is that if you neglect the teaching of the second coming, if your understanding of it's underdeveloped or uh, unapplied, I think you're really gonna struggle in following Jesus for the long haul. And you're really gonna struggle in living the Christian life. It'll be like playing solitaire with cards missing. You can do it, but it's gonna be very frustrating and it's gonna end in frustration. And so I want us to open these words and I want us to to dwell on them together to see what God has to say to us through them. And so I would ask if you're able to please stand with me for the reading of God's word, Luke chapter 12. And we're gonna read verses 35 through 48. These are the words of Jesus who says, be dressed, ready for service and keep your lamps burning like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night. But understand this, The owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Peter asked, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? The Lord answered, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But suppose that servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming. And he then begins to beat the men servants and maid servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and on an hour he is unaware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. That servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Father, as we come to these words of your son, they're challenging, they're hard, 
but they're also comforting. And so I pray that your spirit will go to work on our minds and our hearts right now, that it will break up the clay of cynicism in some of our hearts, of distraction in other hearts, that you would give us an attentiveness to your word so that we could leave here as a people who have been strengthened and changed by it. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I wanna look at this text under three headings, really three things that I think this text calls us to, three ways our lives should be shaped by the return of Christ. And those three things are, number one, we should stay alert. I think the text is telling us to stay alert. Number two, it's calling us to set our hope. And then number three, it's telling us to steward well. We're gonna start by talking about staying alert. There are two extremes that Christians tend towards when it comes to the return of Christ. You know, on one end of the spectrum, you have people who obsess over the dates, the times, the events. They look at things in our culture and, you know, they have their TI-82 calculators and they're punching things in and they're trying to figure out the equation to discern when Jesus is returning. And so Y2K came along. Anyone remember that? Yeah, what a disappointment that turned out to be, right? But while it was happening, leading up to it, this is the end of the world. When I was a kid, for some reason, at some point, someone told me that UPC codes, you guys know barcodes? I was convinced that that was the mark of the beast because that's what I had been told. And maybe it is, and we've all just been lulled to sleep because we use them all the time. Or anytime a new president is elected, these people kind of come out, right? And so in 1956, John F. Kennedy received 666 votes at the Democratic National Convention, and people became convinced that he was the Antichrist. Now, to be fair, Ronald Wilson Reagan has six letters in each of his names, 666, and so other people were convinced that he was the Antichrist. But if you've been around the church, you guys know him? Have you been around the church? You've seen these people? Like, you can go into the stores, you can buy the books, the people who are just obsessed about the return of Christ. And they're convinced that they know, and they're always convinced that it's going to happen on this particular day or at this particular time. That's one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum, you have Christians who know some of what the Bible says on the matter. You have Christians who, if they had to answer the question, is Jesus coming back, yes or no, they would check the yes box, but Practically, functionally, day in and day out, the truth for them is gathering dust on the shelves of their mind. It's not something they think about. It's not something they dwell upon. It's one of those, oh yeah, and Jesus is coming back someday. I, I think I believe that. Well, in these parables, Jesus is telling us that we need to avoid both extremes. We need to avoid the extreme of obsessing about the exact date and time, but we also need to avoid the other extreme where we don't really think about it all that much. He tells us parables. The first parable is about a master who was out late celebrating a wedding. And Jesus says, there are servants waiting at home for the master return. And he says, it will be good. In verse 38, it will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night. And so the point of this parable is that the master, he might be late in coming, at least in the servant's mind, but they need to be ready because the master is returning. 
They need to keep their lamps burning because the master is coming back. Stay alert. But then in verse 39, Jesus gives a different illustration. And I think he gives us this illustration to keep us from obsessing over dates and times and events. In verse 39, he says, you know, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. Now, I don't think what Jesus is saying here is you should like stay up and guard the front door. That's not the point of this parable. The point of this parable is that Jesus is going to come like a thief in the night, that you're not gonna know. The point of this parable is not don't be surprised when Jesus comes. The point of this parable is you will be surprised when he comes. That's why Jesus says, the son of man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Jesus is going to come back at a time and in a way that's just totally unexpected. Contrary to popular belief in some Christian fiction, the end of the world is not going to be marked by widespread panic or chaos. Yes, there will be wars and rumors of war and chaos, just like there always is. But the end of the world, when Jesus comes back, it's not going to be widespread panic it's going to come in an ordinary, boring, almost mundane way. So much so that no one's going to expect it. It's just going to happen. In Matthew 24, Jesus says that on that day, there's going to be two farmers out in the field working. And then boom, Jesus is going to show up. There's going to be two women who are grinding grain alongside of each other. And then boom, Jesus is going to show up. You're going to be sitting in your cubicle or washing the dishes or watching something on Netflix or running errands. Boom. That's going to be it. The trumpet's going to sound. Jesus is going to appear. And the curtain is going to fall on this world as we currently know it. See, in these parables, Jesus is telling us, he's saying there's only two things that we can know for sure about his second coming. Only two things. Number one, it's definitely going to happen. Number two, no one knows when it's going to happen. It's definitely going to happen. Who knows when? And so the necessary implication of this is that we live in a constant state of preparedness for his return that we live in a state constantly being attentive to the fact that any hour might be our last. Any day might be our last. And that's why Jesus begins this, this section by saying, be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning. He's saying, stay awake, stay alert. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a, a moment, for me, the the doctrine of the second coming of Christ, the, the final judgment, that was a doctrine I didn't really like for a long time in my Christian life. It's one of those, I believe it, I read, tried to read Revelation once, didn't go back there for seven or eight years. Anyone ever been there? You're like, what in the world? Um, and so I, I kind of put it to the side. And then, I don't know, six, seven years ago, I feel like it kind of clicked and this doctrine that I once wanted to avoid, it became so incredibly sweet to me and powerful. And 
once I started understanding the magnitude of what Jesus' return will mean, I, I was almost like waiting on tiptoes for it to happen. The only problem is you can't stand on tiptoes for long, right? Because you get tired. And I think the Bible tells us to hope, to anticipate, to look, but you can't live on your tiptoes. And so what does it mean for us to live in a state of preparedness for Jesus' return? What does that look like? C.S. Lewis actually wrote an essay on the return of Christ called The World's Last Night, and he offers a, a helpful analogy. He says, if, if you're a person in your 70s, and I'll bump it up to the 80s so that I don't offend anyone here, uh, but he says, if you're a person in your 80s, he says, you don't need to always be thinking and talking about your death. You shouldn't always be thinking and talking about your death. But at the same time, he says, a wise 80-year-old will always be taking it into account. A wise 80-year-old will make sure they have a will written. A wise 80-year-old will not make commitments that will take 20 to 30 years to complete. So you don't want to be thinking about it all the time, he says. You shouldn't be thinking about it all the time, on the one hand. But then on the other hand, he says you should be thinking about it. And I think that's helpful because what death is to each of us, the, the second coming of Christ is to the world. That we shouldn't become neurotic about it. We shouldn't become obsessive about it where it's the only thing we think about. But we should never let it far from our minds. And our minds should never drift far from it. We need to stay alert to it. And this has always been a challenge for the people of God, but I don't know if it's ever been harder than it is today. When I look at our life, the reason we struggle to live attentive to this reality, you know, most people throughout most of human history have had really bad lots. You know what I mean? Like they, they were hoping to just have food on the table, have a roof over their head, have their wife survive childbirth, have their kids survive past the age of 10. Like people were just trying to survive for so much of human history. We, we've got it good. You know, we give our kids robots that talk for Christmas. <laughs> we're in a pretty good season here. And so part of the reason we don't long for this, we don't look at this, it's because life's really good for a lot of us. But then also, I, th I think another thing is we're just so stinking busy. Like we have to be the busiest generation in the history of the world. The amount of appointments we have, bills to pay, responsibilities we're managing. We book our calendars through and through. We don't even know what leisure is. We have to make sure we schedule time to have leisure. And then the whole time we're neurotic about thinking about that leisure like we are so stinking busy all the time. And what happens is the, the busyness of our routine, the monotony of our days, they can serve as white noise that kind of drown out the ultimate reality that Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead. You guys know what I'm talking about? I mean, just day in and day out, you're in the grind and maybe you thought about it at one point, but then you're going through the motions day by day and it just fades on you and life's comfortable, and maybe you think, I'm gonna live the way I'm living now forever. At least that's the assumption so many of us make. Jesus is saying, no, be ready. What you're experiencing right now is temporary and it's fleeting. Something else is happening. I'm coming back. Stay alert. But he doesn't just tell us to stay alert. He says, set your hope. 
And I know some of you are thinking, when you just read that passage, I didn't see a whole lot of hope in it, right? I mean, Jesus said he's gonna cut the servant to pieces and he's going to beat him with many blows. Where is the hope in this text? And I would say, look a little closer. You know, those lines are the one that draw our eyes and kind of capture our imagination. But you gotta go back a little earlier and understand why. Why was the servant cut to pieces? Why was the servant beaten with many blows? What's the story? And this is, it's a part of a parable. And this parable, like the first one, is about a master who goes away. This master goes away on a journey. He's not at a wedding. He's going away on a journey. And he takes one of his servants and he says, you're going to be the one in charge. I'm entrusting my household to you. I'm entrusting my money, the other servants, my food, my wine, all that I have. I'm giving it to you to look after. And then Jesus says, now suppose, what if that servant, while the master's gone, says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming. And then he begins to beat the men servants and maid servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. Like, why was he cut to pieces? Why was he beaten with many blows? Because it's abuse. The servant abused his position. He abused his power. He abused the other servants. He took the gifts the master had given him and the things the master had entrusted to him and he abused them. And what Jesus is saying here, it's ultimately good news. The good news, that abuse will not go unchecked forever and that bad people will not get away with things forever. You know, I know that our world and our world and in our culture in particular, the word judgment carries with it some very heavy and very negative connotations. That's one of the first things. Like, Christians are so judgmental. And you know what? We are, and so is everyone else. One of the biggest lies in our society is, well, I just don't judge people. Or I'm a non-judgmental person. No, all of us have a desire for judgment because all of us have a desire for justice. Even though our world doesn't like the word, it's something we all long for. I mean, when we are wronged, what do we want? We want retribution. We want people to pay us back. We want justice. I mean, this is why social media exists, right? (laughs) United Airlines screwed up your flight and then the woman was mean to you at the desk. What do you do? You hop on Twitter, so disappointed by United Airlines, ashamed that I would have ever chosen to fly with them. You name them and you shame them. And you say, I will never fly again. Tell your friends and family to stay away from United. They're from the pit of hell. American, yeah. That's what we do. And then we say, we'll never fly until the flights, there's the cheapest flight again. And then we say, you know, you go to a restaurant and the service isn't up to snuff. What do people do? They name and shame the restaurant online. Terrible service, terrible food. When a politician or a celebrity says something dumb and we all say and do dumb things, But unfortunately for them in this day and age, they've always got cameras and microphones around them all the time. When they say something dumb, what do people do? 
They lash out. It's, it's the new lynch mob. Social media. Can you believe so-and-so said this? And then everyone piles on. Don't fool yourself and don't kid yourself. We all want justice. We all long for justice. But at the same time, we fear justice. We fear if judgment should come upon our lives. Because if we're willing to be honest, we know that we've all abused gifts that God has given us. We all know that there are things that God has given to us, he's entrusted to us, that we have either abused, we've taken advantage of, or we've distorted. God gives you children to raise in fear and love, fear of the Lord and love, and you, you just get annoyed with them sometimes because kids can be annoying. And so you flip out at them. You abuse your post. God blesses you financially, and you use that money, and you don't use it to help you don't give any of it away. You spend it all on yourself. That's abusing your post. Like we've all done it. And that is why when we read passages like this, we get very uneasy. We get anxious. Sometimes we even get disgusted. And this is really why people, even though we live in one of the most judgmental eras in human history, people hate it when the church talks about judgment. Because while we want to judge other people, we don't like the idea of God being a judge. The problem is not one of us has the wisdom, the perspective, the judiciousness to really be a good judge. But the hope of the New Testament is that there is one who's fit to judge. The hope of the New Testament is that there is one who has all the information and he is not a hard-hearted, vengeful tyrant. He is a man of sorrows was acquainted with much grief on our behalf. He is God who became man so that he could sympathize with us in our weaknesses. And while, yes, the day is coming when he's coming to judge, he first came to redeem, to take judgment. When I read this passage, I see this foreshadowing the cross. Jesus Christ was the one who was beaten with many blows. Jesus Christ was the one who was cut to pieces. Why? So that he might take the wrath and judgment we deserve so that we might receive grace. Paul, when you read passages like this, you, you have to hold them together with what the rest of the New Testament teaches. And Paul, he goes to great lengths to offer assurance of salvation for all who believe. Furthermore, as we've been reading Acts, there's calls at times to examine yourself. I think sober examination's a good thing. But you don't see people who are neurotic about, am I saved? Well, does this mean I won't be saved anymore? There's a steadiness and a confidence. And so some of you here, you have very sensitive consciences. Every time you sin, you're worried is God gonna be done with me? No. Jesus Christ bore your sin, all of it, past, present, and future. Paul, when he's talking about the end times in 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so you have to get that your mind has to be set on that. Jesus bore our judgment. That's the only way you're gonna be able to look at Jesus' return, not with dread, but with hope. And the New Testament, 
the overarching theme about the, the second coming of Jesus in the New Testament is we should look upon it with hope, not fear. In our world, the idea of the second coming of Christ, it stirs a lot of fear. For Christians, it should stir hope in us. Peter says, 1 Peter 1, he says, set your hope fully on the grace to be given to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Like, what are we to set our hope on? Fully. A word that could be translated perfectly on the grace that is to be revealed to us when Jesus returns. And so the language of the New Testament the movement of the New Testament is that as Christians, we should be looking forward to Christ's return. That is our great hope. What I see, especially in evangelical America churches, American churches, is that our tendency is to spend most of our time looking back at the cross. Now, I love the cross. If it wasn't for the cross, we would all stand under judgment. Praise God for the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross. But here's the thing, you can't hope in the cross. It's not in the actual event because hope always has a future element, not a past element. And what I see are a lot of Christians who that's, their, their life is focused in that direction. And so what happens is all they know, the only movements of the Christian life that they know are repentance and faith and repentance and faith and repentance and faith. I've sinned, I'm gonna repent and then I'm gonna believe Jesus died for me. And hey, if that's all you know, there are worse things that you could know. Like, that's, that's good. Those are some good basics. But when you read the New Testament, you realize that Christian faith is about a lot more than repentance and faith. It's also about hope. And it's also about looking and longing for Jesus' return. Like I said, we don't do it because our lives are comfortable. We don't do it because... Yeah, you know, when, when our own kingdom has had a good year, it's hard to long for the kingdom of God, right? When life is going really, really well for you, you pray, thy kingdom come, but just not quite yet. Now, I don't want you to feel guilty if your life's going well. I don't want you to feel ashamed. No, praise God. But don't get comfortable. And one of the things that we can do to stir our hope even when life is, is good, one of the things that we can do, I mean, this is what Jesus is saying when he, he says, keep your lamps burning, be ready, be dressed for action. He's saying, don't get too comfortable in this world. He's saying, don't just settle in. He's saying, don't fall into a trap of being spiritually lazy or self-absorbed and don't insulate yourself from the suffering in our world. Like hope is the only thing an awful lot of people have going for them. I mean, in a grand sense, it's all any of us have going for us. But there are some people, that's all they've got. Like, they don't have a nice house to come home to, nice car to drive, great food to eat. We do. Praise God. I celebrate it. You don't need to feel guilty about it. But don't turn a blind eye to how many people in this world are suffering. Look across an ocean. Look across our country. Look across the city. Look across this room. We're called to weep with those who weep. We're called to hope alongside of those whose only hope is God's coming redemption. And what happens when we weep with those who weep, when we hope alongside those people who hope, 
we end up finding ourselves working in the same direction as our hope. And that's the implication here. The reason why it's bad to just always look at the cross and never look at the future is that you reduce Christianity down to getting everyone to either say a prayer or to admit that they're sinners and they need a savior and you just live in that world. And that's not all bad, it's just so incomplete. Go read the New Testament. It sings again and again about the coming of Christ. There is a future element of our faith that we cannot put on the shelf. And the reason we can't put it on our shelf is not just because we passed the exam, it's because the way we will live our life today will be affected. If you aren't looking to that future day, your passion for justice, for the oppressed, for healing, for the suffering, it's gonna be severely diminished. But when you set your hope on what Jesus is going to do, make all things new, you, you find yourself working in that same direction. And that leads to my last point. The last thing Jesus says is steward well. You know, there are many Christians who tend to shy away from thinking or talking too much about the return of Christ because they're afraid that if you put too much emphasis on it, it'll either make you a fanatic or a zealot or like an Islamic terrorist. Well, like if we think too much about Jesus coming back, we'll all go crazy or it'll lead to escapism. You checking out from life, taking the easy road. You know, that's where... Marx or Nietzsche, who said religion's the opium of the masses that we, we check out. And there are some people who think, well, if you spend all this time talking about what Jesus is going to do, you're going to just detach because it'll all be over soon. But if you understand what Jesus is teaching in these parables, you realize that a proper understanding of Christ's return will do neither. You know, that third parable about the master who goes on the journey and entrusts his servants and his money and his house to one of the servants as a manager, Jesus says this, he says, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. You see what Jesus says here? It's kind of hard the way it's written, but Jesus is saying that that servant's gonna be blessed. Why are they gonna be blessed? Not because they were praying all the time, not because they were reading their Bible all the time. He says that servant's going to be blessed because they were doing what they were called to do. They were doing what they'd been entrusted to do. See, a proper understanding of the return of Christ, it shouldn't lead us to detach from the world. It should actually lead to a more full, faithful service of it. Jesus here is saying, blessed is going to be the servant who's doing what he's supposed to do when the master returns. Blessed is the servant who stewards well. You know, the bumper sticker, Jesus is coming back, everyone look busy. Uh, you ever seen that? Like, I give credit on the creativity of that. But that bumper sticker, it captures the cynicism of our age. Jesus calls us to something better than cynicism. He calls us to engage deeply with this world because he's coming to redeem the world. And so he's calling us to play our part in this world, to be faithful to the people, the responsibilities, the resources, what's been entrusted to us. Jesus is saying, you need to steward and steward well. And if you're stewarding it well, 
the master's going to rejoice. Not just the master's going to rejoice. I mean, there are, there are promises of rewards in this text. And I don't know what heavenly rewards are going to look like. I've always assumed I'm going to be the one who's escaping like through the flames. And I'm happy if that's me. But Jesus holds something so much better. I mean, he holds rewards out. And he says, if you do your job, if you are faithful with what's before you, he says, one, the master's gonna put you in charge of all of his possessions. I don't even know what that means. He says, the master's going to dress himself to serve and that you'll get to recline along with him and then he will serve you. Jesus, he's calling us to something better than cynicism. He's calling to deeply engage the world as it is today. And so the, the bumper sticker, Jesus is coming back, everyone look busy. That's wrong. The, the, the truth is more like Jesus is coming back. Stand your ground, stand your post. Do your job. Be faithful with where God has you. And not just in a spiritual sense. You know, you can use passages like this and you can use it just to, to motivate people in the church and don't worry, I'm gonna do that in a minute. But there's some personal things here. Like he's saying, be faithful with what God's put before you. And so if you are uh, parents and you have small kids in your house, like part of the work Jesus is calling you to right now is changing diapers and making peanut butter and jellies. Like that's you standing where you're supposed to stand in this moment. Some of you are business owners. And the calling that God's put before you is do great work that benefits the common good and do it with integrity. You're standing where you're supposed to stand. Others of you are working jobs that you hate. And the only reason you're doing it is because you gotta pay the bills. Jesus' words to you is stand where you're supposed to stand at this moment. Don't check out, don't be lazy, keep your focus, keep your head about you, and do the work that God has entrusted to you. And so that's the individual level, but I think this text also speaks to us on a corporate level. And here's why I wanted to preach on this passage, and here's why this thing has stuck with me for so long. Because Jesus says, he finishes this section and he says this, for everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. And I think one of the greatest temptations, one of the greatest threats to our church is just the sense of getting comfortable with where we're at. Getting comfortable with our Sunday services, fine-tuning everything to where everything runs smoothly. And we've got a great experience on Sunday and maybe a great experience on Wednesday night when you go to community group. But what Jesus, he says here what the Bible holds forth is that the church doesn't just exist for the people in the church. We exist for the sake of the world. And that Jesus has invested into us and he's demanding a return on that investment. I mean, it's strong language. And the reason I'm haunted by that verse is because when I look at our church, I'm friends with pastors all around the country. And when pastors from around the country, they talk about Sojourners, they always laugh. They're like, I can't imagine what it would be like to be at Sojourners. Like the embarrassment of riches you have. One guy said, I feel like I'm eating around the mold on the piece of bread I have and you've got this feast there. 
You've got some of the brightest Christian thinkers in our country in your church, Bible scholars, theologians, practitioners, a number of seasoned missionaries, seasoned church planters, pastors. You have business leaders, business owners. You've got servants. You've got resources and money that our church, you know, we could never dream of. Like we bring in more in a week than most churches bring in probably in two or three months. And so we can look at all that and pat ourselves on the back, but Jesus is saying, don't pat yourself on the back. You've been given a ton. What are you gonna do with it? How are you going to leverage it? Because in the end, when you've got an embarrassment of riches, you can try to hide it to protect it. You can hoard it or you can give it away. And I want us to be a church that says, we're gonna give it away. And so we've been thinking long and hard, how do we leverage what's been given to us? And we don't have all the answers, but we do have three things that we've come up with. Number one, we're gonna start a church planting residency program here in the next year. And our goal is to have four men who wanna go start churches to reach people with the gospel. We want them to be able to come to this church to learn among both the scholars and the practitioners for a year to 18 months so that we as a body can then send them out. We wanna let them preach. We wanna let them lead community groups. We want them to know you and build friendships with you so that when they send out, they're sent out by a church that loves them and has their back. We also, we're gonna develop and we're in the process of developing partnerships with some churches overseas, in particular churches in Western Europe. Western Europe is not typically where people think about when they think about international missions, but it's one of the most spiritually dry and dead places in the world. You know, there are places like Italy or Spain. Uh, a mega church there is 200 people. 200 is like a really big mega church there. There are cities there that don't have one single church that teaches the Bible, preaches the Bible. We don't realize it, but it is a spiritual desert. And so what we're looking to do is find some churches that do have some stuff going and saying, how can we partner with you and how can we help you plant some churches in the coming years? Lastly, we don't want to neglect the midst, the city that we find ourselves in the midst of. And so Hillary Noltmeyer, along with Pastor Larry McCrary, they are developing and revamping our mercy and compassion ministry. Because just because we're in the suburbs, that doesn't mean there's not poverty and suffering and hardship. So we're trying to ask, how can we serve and love our neighbors and meet their physical needs? So that's what we've been working on. But as we look to this coming year, I just wanna put, and I wanna leave this one question with you. As we look to this coming year, all of us have gifts. God's blessed us all. What is the next step for you to help you steward well all that God's given to you? Maybe it's becoming a member. You've been coming for a while and you're not a member. Maybe that's the next step. We have a membership class in a month. Maybe it's joining a community group. Maybe it's starting to give. Maybe it's giving regularly. Maybe it's serving on a Sunday. Maybe it's jumping in with our mercy ministry or international ministry, medical clinics. I don't know what it is, but if every single one of us picked one thing and said, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna move the ball forward here, imagine how much we could get done. And so we pray through that, think through that. Share it in your community groups. And I pray to God that we not squander all that he's given to us, but that we leverage it for his glory and for the good 
of the world around us. You know, as we come to the table, we remember the body of Christ broken and the blood of Christ shed, but we also remember that this is a family meal. That communion's a time when we as brothers and sisters in Christ, we eat and we drink together because the church is a family. And in a family, we recognize we all have responsibilities, we all have parts to play. And so I pray that we can come to this table. And what I love about the table is it's a place for us to be reminded once again that we are forgiven, that God cleanses us of all of our sin, even the sins of apathy and laziness and maybe just disengagement. But it's also a place where we can come and we get to try again. We come and we take part and we say, I failed, I've dropped the ball. My heart's grown cold. God warmed my heart. So if you're a Christian, I encourage you to come forward to eat, to drink. The way we take communion here is you tear off a piece of bread and you dip it in the wine or the juice. Uh, the jars are marked. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take part in this meal, but you take part in Jesus who is coming to judge the living and the dead. Let me pray.